I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The launch of the German presidency comes indeed at a very crucial time. To a large extent, these next six months will be determining for the future of the European Union. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen on efforts to get a deal on the recovery fund and the EU budget in the coming weeks. It definitely feels like the pace is picking up on that front. Angela Merkel spoke with von der Leyen this week and Merkel and Emmanuel Macron held face-to-face talks, their first since the coronavirus crisis hit. We'll talk a bit about that meeting in a moment, and later we'll bring you an interview with Serbia's President Alexander Vucic. But first, let's bring together Brussels, Berlin and Paris in our pan-European podcast panel with Politico's Reem Montaz and Matt Karnichnik. So Matt's in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Good afternoon. And Reem's in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello. So I thought we would start with a bit of a recap. We were very much in a preview mode uh, last week. And one of the things we looked ahead to was the French local elections, where the second round took place on Sunday, much delayed by the coronavirus. So Reem, give, give us the headlines there and what you think the implications are in particular for Emmanuel Macron. So the headline is that there was what what we can actually refer to as a green wave, uh, but only in the big cities. Uh, And the smaller cities were, smaller cities and towns, I should say, were where the sort of incumbents from the Socialist Party and the Conservative Party held on quite well to their seats. Emmanuel Macron's uh, party, La République En Marche, had just a completely abysmal night. It was very, very bad. Let me tell you how bad it was. They didn't win one single big city, even though Macron was basically carried to the presidential win through the big cities. And in Paris, where he won the first and the second round of the presidential election, his party came in third, a distant, distant third, so distant that the leader of his list So his former health minister, Agnès Buzyn, wasn't even elected uh, onto the municipal council. That's how bad it was. And of course, we can't talk about elections these days in France without talking about the far right. It was not a good night for the far right Rassemblement National, but they did manage to win one big city. Uh, Now, what does this mean for Macron? Keep in mind that Macron knew this was going to be a very bad election for him. So from the beginning, his aides were basically saying that there would be no sort of national lessons to be drawn from this election. Obviously, that's sort of typical spin. 
We should note that the wins by the Greens don't necessarily mean that they're going to do very well in the presidential election, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the French people are suddenly more eco-friendly. Mm. Let's see. Uh, but one, certainly one of the striking things, um, for me anyway, and I wonder, Matt, what you think about it, is, you know, this this thing that we've seen already in Germany, where if you like the kind of what you might call urban progressives um, have gone from being... Metrosexuals, we call them. Uh, well, that is another term, which I'm sure they'll appreciate <laughs> you using. Um, but, um, you know, or the bobo, as they're sometimes known in Exactly. In France, but if you like that kind of urban, progressive, uh, fairly well-off um, section of the electorate, which might at one time have been, you know, uh, certainly in Germany, uh, part of it would have gone to the Social Democrats, and in France would have gone to the PS, the kind of more bobo bit of the Socialist Party, and and so we've seen there in 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 France, you know, that electorate seemingly or part of it anyway turning green. And you've talked about the kind of social democrats and written about the social democrats kind of declining and and losing a big chunk of their vote to the Greens. And I just wonder if that's a more general trend we can draw in Europe now and and whether there's been any comeback on the part of the social democrats who are, after all, in government in Germany and, you know, might have hoped to have benefited from being in government during this crisis. You know, the, the short answer is no, they don't seem to have re recovered at all. This seems to be a real tectonic shift. And you did have these generations of what some people called champagne socialists. Sorry, champagne socialists. Say Not that easy to times. say after a couple of glasses. Exactly. Um, who, you know, captured uh, a, a big chunk of this uh, demographic. The interesting thing about the Greens, though, is that they're also attracting voters who you know, previously would have drifted more towards the conservative parties, uh, in particular in Germany, say the CDU. I think you're seeing a lot of children of CDU voters now voting for the Greens, especially in urban areas. So this looks like, you know, an, an, an further evidence of of that trend. I think the other interesting aspect, though, of this election, at least from outside France, is that you know, it does seem that there's something of a disconnect here between Macron's reputation within Europe, at least within sort of people who are interested in, in the EU and uh, domestically. Uh, because I think, you know, a lot of people I know here were quite surprised that the Greens did so well because they would have thought that the people voting for the Greens would have tended more to support the very sort of Europhile president here. And, and that didn't happen. And I think it also underscores, at the end of the day, how politically fragile uh, Macron's situation is at home, and, and that that really hurts him on the European stage as well, because, you know, his counterparts in the EU Council know that, you know, he does not have the, you know, full backing of the French people at the moment. And I think that is a, a problem for him in, in a lot of these negotiations, as we've seen now with the Frugal Four, where, you know, he's become very involved in that. And it obviously would give him much more sort of momentum and uh, leverage in those negotiations if, uh, you know, people knew he was going to be around uh, in, in several years' time. But that brings us on to... Um 
uh, Macron and Merkel meeting on Monday at uh, Schloss Meseberg, and and I would say which is a castle, a German government castle outside uh, Berlin, and this of course came pretty just modest ahead. compared to Versailles, though. Yeah, exactly. This is well, it's a castle, not a palace, right? Which in a sense right. maybe sums up the difference the between the two um, right. the two approaches, uh, you know, the two world views. But you know, one of the things that was striking about that, obviously, it was a couple of days before Germany takes over the Council of the EU, which we uh, talked about. Uh, last week and, and Germany's priorities there. So as we said last week, this was partly, uh, in fact, I think it was a lot about symbolism. Angela Merkel inviting Emmanuel Macron to say it's a German uh, presidency, but we're on the same page here. We're working together. Uh, they didn't seem to have a huge amount in terms of substance to say because, you know, they had already thrashed out their differences and come up with their big uh, recovery plan. But what was noticeable um, to some of us anyway was just how long Emmanuel Macron talked. And that's one area where he does um, deliver, certainly in terms of quantity. And um, just off the bat, I think we timed it earlier um, in their opening statements. He's the guest, remember, and he spoke for a solid nine minutes. So if we start Macron talking now, just play in a little bit of that. And then we talk just to give our listeners a sense of how long that was uninterrupted off the bat compared to Merkel, the host who only did six minutes. And it quite often feels this way when they do these joint press conferences and you see very different styles of communication which are partly about them personally. And I just wonder, I suppose, how much is about them personally or how much is this kind of bad manners that he talks so much and she relatively little? Or is this just, you know, the way it is because of these two different people and perhaps different styles of political communication between the countries? What do you think, Matt? Well, I think that given that Merkel's speaking in German, you would expect her to speak longer, number one. Right, yeah. Um, well, the words are you know, longer. That would be sort of the sure. natural order of things, right, since the words are three times as long. So if she were speaking in French, she would be even more concise, probably. But I, I do think it just shows something about the egos involved and the fact that you know, Macron is often playing to his home audience. These televised events are obviously carried by the national uh, news and so forth. And he wants to be seen, you know, leading the discussion. I think, you know, for Merkel now, that's that's less less important. It never was particularly important, I think, for her. These kind of shows, these displays rather of of influence and and power, because everyone knows that she's the most powerful person anyway. She doesn't have to uh, try very hard to prove it. So I think there is some of that. A lot of it, though, is also her personality. I think in these press conferences, my experience is is that you know she tries to get out of there as quickly as possible. There is this tradition now in most of these uh, bilateral uh, press conferences between Germany and whichever country to allow two questions per country. A couple of weeks ago, she allowed three questions per country and made a big deal about <laughs> yeah, how like it was a generous she was for being. Us. You know, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, but you know, for those listeners who are familiar with, say, Donald Trump press conference or Boris Johnson, you know, this is not necessarily the standard. Uh, two quick questions you know, which, by the way, go to handpicked journalists. So they know more or less what is going to be asked, even if they don't know the exact question, they know that it's not going to get too out of hand. And, um, you know, it's just, I think at the at the, at the end of the day, it's just a, a, a clash of, of cultures between Merkel and Macron. Okay, let's just uh, listen into a little bit more of Emmanuel. Definitely still talking. Un budgétaire au mois de juillet. 
Graeme, you you know you you follow pretty much every Macron press conference. You've covered you know good number of them in in person. How much of them of this is him, and how much of this is just French political culture in terms of you know how a president speaks? I mean, listen, it's it's both, and it's obviously the bane of my existence. Not only how long he speaks, but the flowery language, the very complex expressions, the outdated expressions, going all the way back to the nineteenth century, where even French people have to bring out the dictionary to understand what the hell he's talking about. Uh, you know, that is just kind of part of the charm of covering Emmanuel Macron. Another sort of way of understanding him is that, you know, when he's asked, what is it that he wants to do when he's not president anymore? The first thing he says is write books. He thinks of himself as a novelist and you can hear it in his speeches. He is Most people want to read books. Nope. Yeah. He wants to write them. So it <laughs> just gives long you... Long books, I think we can assume. Long you know, books. Not, long not books. little paperbacks. He is just absolutely unable to... Uh, speak in short sentences. And there's a running joke even among his staff about how he always goes over time. He always goes off script in his already very long speeches. Right. And this, what, what strikes me is this is just a press conference. Right? This is not a formal event where you're giving a speech. This is just an opening statement. We talked about X, Y or Z. And um, if I just look at the clock now, I think we've been talking about it for about Three or four minutes? Five. Christina's giving me the signal. Five uh, minutes. So that's, you know, basically we've just gone about halfway in terms of the length of Emmanuel Macron's opening statement at a press conference. It well, just he is more eloquent than us, it has to be said. Well, but the thing is, we might miracle. speak for yourself. But uh, what I would also say is just say that that's three of us talking in that period of time. This is just one guy. Yeah, but I would also add one thing, which I think is specific to, to France. You know, European issues don't get uh, sort of prime time coverage in France. And Macron, I think, feels that unless he is saying it himself, people are not going to listen. So you see him, I've noticed this, he'll come out and be next to Merkel, for example, and he will repeat even things she's just said, just because he thinks that people in France will listen more if he's the one talking about it. And so it leads to kind of this recap that goes on for long and long. Mm -mm. Anyway, let's see if he's, uh, if he or any of his aides are listeners and whether we get a more concise, you know, compact Macron uh, next time, or if they decide just to troll us by, you know, doing 18 minutes. Anyway, um, as you can hear, if we fade up for a little bit, he's uh, still talking. And we'll leave him there because, you know, having... Um, Having made a point of how long Emmanuel Macron talked for, I think, we have talked for longer, but covered a lot more ground. Let that be stated for the record. Okay, Matt, <laughs> Reem, thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, let's move to Serbian President Alexander Vucic. Politico's Jacopo Baragazzi and I sat down with him here in Brussels at the end of last week. It was, as they say in this business, a wide-ranging conversation that lasted for about 45 minutes, covered a lot of ground, and we're going to bring you some of the highlights now. As you may remember, Vucic was meant to be at the White House last weekend for talks with leaders from Kosovo, aimed at building closer cooperation between two camps who were on opposite sides of war in 1998 and 1999. And the eventual aim of the US and the EU in all of this is to reach a permanent peace settlement between the two sides. 
But the White House plan was blown out of the water after prosecutors announced that they had filed war crimes charges against Kosovan President Hashim Thaci, just as he was en route to Washington. Now, those talks in the US were going to be controversial anyway, as the US had kind of muscled in on EU territory. The EU has for years been in charge of dialogue between the two sides. So I asked Vucic if those US-sponsored talks were still a live option, and if he could still end up going to the White House. Whenever they invite me, how can one small guy from the Balkans refuse to speak to someone from White House, high officials from US. I'm not that irresponsible. But even when the case was very active, I was insisting on that, unlike the other side. Insisting on the political dialogue under the auspices of EU. And I'm not saying this today. I said it on Monday when it was very obvious that we were going to have that meeting in Washington. And I said it publicly, because we have a legal base for that. We have a General Assembly, United Nations General Assembly decision on that. And it has to be done under the auspices of EU. Now, Vucic's description of himself there as one small guy from the Balkans will at least raise some eyebrows in the region. This is the dominant figure in the biggest country in the Western Balkans. So dominant that his party just claimed 60% of the vote in a parliamentary election. Now, a good number of people inside and outside Serbia see that dominance as a problem. Academics, NGOs, opposition politicians, Western officials say it's come as a result of an erosion of freedom and democratic standards. And the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe said that voter choice in the election was, quotes, limited by the governing party's overwhelming advantage and the promotion of government policies by most major media outlets, end quote. We put that criticism directly to Vucic and asked him if the elections were fair. I think so, the, the, the most fair elections we have ever had. I don't say that it's an ideal situation. But I would like you to see that, not to read bureaucratic reports which have always, but come to our country and see it. And we didn't attack, we didn't say a single bad word about our political opponents. That's why I'm saying that it was the cleanest campaign ever. Because have people like that. Not a single bad word about any of them. Although they were spitting on me every single day. And I said only results and our plans. And people were saying, well, that's true. That's something that we got 75 years after we expected. And people rationalize themselves. Okay, this was good. We expect even more in the future. If you don't deliver, we'll vote for someone else. And the hard work, that's the secret. You cannot tweet three times and then blubbing against the media and everything else. And you need to wake up at 6 o'clock, not up to 11 o'clock. You know, before 11 o'clock I finish 10 of my meetings and then they wake up. And they really mean it. I see mm. their first tweets at 11.05 during their first coffee, I mean their first coffee and that's it, you know. And they think that they can win. At 1.30 they are in a big restaurant in Belgrade. Uh, they want to be seen by all the others, how fancy they are. And I'm in a remote village somewhere in Serbia. And you want to beat me. 
You really think so? It works like that? No, it doesn't. Now, another way in which Vucic has made headlines over the past few months is with strong praise of China for helping Serbia deal with the coronavirus. China is an increasingly important player in the Western Balkans, which, remember, is surrounded by EU members. In those same remarks, Vucic also blasted the EU. He dismissed EU solidarity as a fairy tale. So we asked him about those comments, and he's certainly not backing away from them. I said they helped us in a most difficult situation. Did I lie? Did I say something that you didn't hear even from in a different way from Ursula, from Italians, from French, from Spanish? But it was easy to find a scapegoat and make a target of him and you all do whatever you want against that small guy from the Balkans. That's his fault and that's it. And everybody else was thinking the same, saying the same, but because of that one decent sentence, just decent sentence, nothing bad it was said. And I had quite a reason to say that because on that day it was abolished an export from EU countries of medical equipment to Serbia and to all the other non-EU countries, just for you to know. But if if that was the easiest way for all the others to find someone to blame him or her for every, for everything. Okay, I am that guy, and that's it. Although in, almost immediately I said, yes, we are on our EU path, but whether I am disappointed with this, yes, I am. And so I'm punished because I was sincere. I didn't lie to anyone. And I was saying what I really thought at that time. Despite that criticism of the EU, Vucic says Serbia very much wants to become a member of the club. It began membership talks in 2014 and Vucic talked about speeding up that process. But all of that is bound up with where we started, peace talks with Kosovo. The EU has made clear that neither side can have any hope of joining until they've reached a permanent settlement. Vucic and Thatchy had previously floated the idea of border change, a highly controversial idea that divided international opinion and worried a lot of people in the region. And Vucic told us it's now up to others to come up with a plan and that he'd want firm guarantees from the EU before signing off on any deal. I'm ready to discuss every single issue. I'm ready to discuss all the proposals that might come from anyone. But it cannot be the case that we lose everything and they gain everything. There are different things that you can gain, but someone has to propose it. You could also propose I did my I did my best and it didn't work. And it was very risky for me politically and I was once again very honest. Now it's your turn. Now I'm just waiting. That's what I said to them. Let me see. If you think that Serbs will accept that to recognize Kosovo's independence to get maybe EU membership in the future, hey, it has to be. But not maybe. It has to be. That's the point. Do you ever have any doubts about about you know that goal? I mean, you could be close to the EU without joining it. Do you have to be all the way in? We would like to be a member of a club, to tell you the truth. 2026. And to finish Accession Talks 2024. As you can see, I'm very precise. 
Now, that target date strikes at least some officials in Brussels as highly ambitious. They say Serbia would need to step up progress on the rule of law and other fronts to stand a chance. But one of the most interesting parts of the conversation, for me anyway, as someone who used to live and work in the Balkans, was when Jacopo, my colleague, asked Vucic what books he'd read lately. And he mentioned reading about the history of Germany. And it sounded like he saw post-war Germany as something of a model for modern-day Serbia. It's that reformation period. And after that, what was happening, even after they lost Königsberg, Strasbourg and the other territories, including territories within Czech Republic and how they acted, preserving their language, preserving their culture everywhere, you know, and always becoming the most powerful European nation, even with all these losses. And using how they used Brother Grimm, Goethe, Schiller, and all the others, which we have never, ever been able to do the same. I would like us to be smart enough and to know that it's not always the territorial issue that's the most important. It's important, no doubt. But it cannot be more important than the value, than the language, than the values, than the virtue, than the language, than the culture, than the people in particular. And you can do everything with your bare hands, with creating better economy, with creating better image for your country. You can do everything. Just look at Germany today. Do they really need Kaliningrad? Those words were really quite striking, as the wars of the 1990s in the Balkans were very much about territory, controlling it and controlling who gets to live on it. A lot of people, particularly among Serbia's neighbours, will be highly sceptical about the idea of the country turning into a mini-version of today's Germany. And they'd be very sceptical about Vucic, who began his political career as an ultra-nationalist, being the person to do it. We spent some of the conversation talking about various historic Serbian figures. If Vucic pulls off that feat, he'll certainly go down as one of them. And that's all the time we have in this edition of EU Confidential. If you enjoy the podcast, I know I say this every week, but please take a moment to rate us by clicking some stars and leaving a review. We're always happy to hear from you by email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening.